Purple.com. Sleep better for less. Number one in customer satisfaction. Two years in a row with Mattresses Online by J.D. Power Award. Pick the right mattress for you. The Purple Mattress, dual-layered comfort form. Purple Hybrid, breathable, responsible support. Purple Hybrid Premier, less pressure for dreamy floating. The Ascent adjustable base to make it possible to work, sleep, and lounge in bed. Bundle up for big savings, 10% off premium bedding and cushional bundles. Kids mattresses opt, opt, optimally placed grid and softer form for best support, even for little sleepers. Enjoy no pressure support with free sheets and two pillows on select mattresses. Purchase up to 247 value. Sleepy Jones and Purple Pajamas all day comfort with soft stretch inspired pajamas while you work uh, worry about breakfast. Some products are Purple Harmony Pillow, Double Seat Cushion, Purple and Gravity Weighted Blanket, Purple Duvet. Choose Purple for no pressure support for everybody 30 years 30 plus years and 35 patents comfort gel grid technology originally created to make wheelchairs more comfortable than their remembered beds people love purple period positively comfy even for your fur baby everyplate.com Make affordable, crowd-pleasing meals at home. Choose from 14 delicious and affordable recipes that change every week. Everything you need is shipped to your door. Home-cooked deliciousness ready in 30 minutes. Save time and skip tedious trips to the grocery store. Save money and enjoy tasty dinners that work that won't break the bank at only $4.99 per serving. Easy-to-cook recipes that only take six simple steps and will turn you into a chef. And you can skip or cancel anytime. Some examples of meals are sweet chili chicken, super smash burgers, Boswick glazed pork chops, Tuscan beef meatball, Tuscan pork meatballs, crispy blue cheese chicken, chicken sausage meatball soup, sausage chicken pepper, stir fry, garlicky white sauce flatbreads, caramelized onion meatloaves, loaded baked potato chowder. Creamy chicken sausage penne, black bean and pepper jack tostadas, chili garlic shrimp, crispy chickpea couscous bowls, chicken breast, ground beef, and chicken. Just select uh, recipes after signing up. Recommended by 9,000 families. Break the cycle of boring. Good morning. We'll continue with U.S. President Number 36, Linda B. Johnson, Part 4, Federal Funding for Education. Johnson, whose own ticket out of property was a public education in Texas, firmly believed that education was a cure for ignorance and poverty and was an essential component for the, of the American dream, especially for minorities who endured poor facilities and tight-fisted budgets from local taxes. He made education a top priority of the Great Society agenda with an emphasis on helping poor children. After the 1960 landslide brought in many new liberal congressmen, LBJ launched a legislative effort which took the name of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, ESEA, of the 1965. The bill sought to double federal spending on education from $4 billion to $8 billion with considerable facilitating by the White House. It passed 
the house by a vote of 263 to 153 on March 26th, and then it remarkably passed without change <coughs> in the Senate by 73 to 8 without going through the usual conference committee. This was an historic accomplishment by the President with the billion-dollar bill passing as introduced just 87 days before. For the first time, large amounts of federal money went to public schools. In practice, EC, ESEA meant helping all public school districts with more money going to districts that had large proportions of students from poor families, which included all the big cities. For the first time, private schools, most often them Catholic schools in the inner schools, received services such as library funding compromising about 12% of the ESEA budget, though federal funds were involved. They were administered by local officials, and by 1977, it was reported that less than half of the funds were actually applied toward the education of children under the poverty line. Dalek further reports that researchers cited by Hugh Davis Graham soon found that the poverty had more to do with family background and neighborhood conditions than the quality, quantity of education a, a child received. Early studies suggested initial improvements for poor children helped by East SEA reading and math programs, but later assessments indicated that benefits faded quickly and left pupils little better off than those not in the schemes. Johnson's second major education program was the Higher Education Act of 1965, which focused on funding for lower-income students, including grants, work-study money, and government loans. Although ESEA solidified Johnson's support among K-12 teachers, unions, neither the Higher Education Act nor the new endowments modified the college professors and students growing increasingly uneasy with the war in Vietnam. In 1967, Johnson signed the Public Broadcasting Act to create educational television programs to supplement the broadcast networks. In 1965, Johnson also set up the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts to support academic subjects such as literature, history, and law, and arts such as music, painting, and sculpture as the WPA once did. One War on Poverty and Healthcare Reform. In 1964, at Johnson's request, the Congress would pass the Revenue Act of 1964 and the Economic Opportunity Act as part of the War on Poverty. Johnson set in motion legislation creating programs such as Head, State, Head Start, Food Stamps, and Work Study. During Johnson's years in office, national poverty declined significantly with the percentage of men living below poverty line dropping from 23% to 12%. Johnson took an additional step in the war on poverty with an urban renewal effort presented in the Congress in January 1966. The demonstration cities program to be eligible, a city would need to demonstrate its readiness to arrest blight and decay and make a substantial impact on the development of its entire city. Johnson requested an investment of $400 million per year, totaling $2.4 billion. In the fall of 1966, the Congress passed a substantially reduced program costing $900 million, which Johnson later called the Model Cities Program, changed its name, had little effect on the success of the bill. The New York Times wrote 22 years later that the program was, for the most part, a failure. Johnson's initial effort to improve health care was, was the accretion of the Commission on Heart Disease, Cancer, and Stroke, Strokes, HDCS, combined. These diseases accounted for 70% of the nation's deaths in 1962. To enact recommendations of the Commission, Johnson asked Congress for funds to set up the Regional Medical Program, RMP, to create a network of hospitals with federally funded research and practice. Congress passed a significant watered-down version as a backup position. In 1965, Johnson turned his focus to hospital insurance for the aged under Social Security. 
the key player in initiating this program named Medicare was Wilbur Mills, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. <coughs> in order to reduce Republican opposition, Mills suggested that Medicare be fashioned as a three-layer cake, hospital insurance under Social Security, a voluntary insurance program for doctor visits, and an expanded medical welfare program for the poor, known as Medicaid. The bill passed the House by a margin of 110 votes on April 8th. The effort in the Senate was considered more complicated. However, the Medicare bill passed Congress on July 28th after negotiation in a conference committee. Medicare now covers tens of millions of Americans. Johnson gave the first two Medicare cards to the to former President Harry S. Truman and his wife Bess after signing the medical Medicare bill at the Truman Library in Independence, Missouri. Transportation. In March 1965, Johnson sent to Congress a transportation message which included the creation of a new transportation department, which would include the Commerce Department's Office of Transportation, the Bureau of Public Roads, the Federal Aviation Agency, the Coast Guard, the Maritime Administration, the Civil Aeronautics Board, and the Interstate Commerce Commission. The bill passed the Senate after some negotiation over navigation projects in the House Passage required negotiation over maritime interests, and the bill was signed October 15, 1965. Gun Control On October 22, 1968, Lyndon Johnson signed the Gun Control Act of 1968, one of the largest and farthest reaching federal gun control laws in American history. Much of the motivation for this large expansion of federal gun regulations came as a response to the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and Martin Luther Luther King, Jr. Space program. During Johnson's administration, NASA conducted the Gemini Man space program, developed the Saturn V rocket and its launch facility, and prepared to make the first manned Apollo program flights. On January 27, 1967, the nation was stunned when the entire crew of Apollo 1 was killed in a cabin fire during a spacecraft test on the launch pad, stopping Apollo in its tracks. Rather than appointing another Warren-style commission, Johnson accepted Administrator James E. Webb's request for NASA to do its own investigation, holding itself accountable to Congress and the President. Johnson maintained his staunch support of Apollo through congressional and press controversy, and the program recovered the first two manned missions of Apollo 7 and the first manned flight to the moon. Apollo 8 were completed by the end of Johnson's term. He congratulated Apollo 8 crew saying, you've taken all of us all over the world into a new era. On July 16, 1969, Johnson attended the launch of the first moon landing mission, Apollo 11, becoming the first former or incumbent U.S. president to witness a rocket launch. Urban riots. Major riots in black neighborhoods caused a series of long, hot summers. They started with a violent disturbance in the Harlem riots in 1964 and the Watts District of Lots. Los Angeles in 1965 and extended to 1971. The momentum for the advancement of civil rights came to a sudden halt in the summer of 1965 when, with the riots in Watts, after 34 people were killed and $35 million equivalent to $283.95 million in 2019 in property was damaged, the public feared the exp- an expansion of the violence to other cities and so the appetite for additional progress in LBJ's agenda was lost. Newark burned in 1967, where six days of rioting left 26 dead, 1,500 injured, and inner city a burned out shell. In Detroit in 1967, Governor George Romney sent in 7,400 
National Guard troops to quell fire, bombings, looting, and attacks on business and on police. Johnson finally sent in federal troops with tanks and machine guns. Detroit continued to burn for three more days until finally 43 were dead, 2250 were injured, 4,000 were arrested. Property damage ranged in the hundreds of millions. The biggest wave of riots came in April 1968 in over 100 cities after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Johnson called for even more billions to be spent in the cities and another federal civil rights law regarding health, but this fell on deaf ears. Johnson's popularity plummeted as a massive white political backlash took shape, reinforcing the sense Johnson had lost control of the streets of major cities as well as his party. Johnson created the Kerner Commission to study the problem of urban riots headed by Illinois Governor Otto Kerner. According to Press Secretary George Christian, Johnson was unsurprised by the riots saying, what do you expect? I don't know why you're so surprised when you put your four foot on a man's neck and hold him down for 300 years and then you let him up. What's he going to do? He's going to n- knock your block off. As well as rioting in Washington, D.C. after the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., President Johnson determined that a coalition of domestic violence and Addis Order existed and issued a proclamation and executive order mobilizing combat-equipped troops. The New York Times reported that 4,000 regular Army and National Guard troops entered into the nation's capital to try to end riotous looting, burglarizing, and burning by roving bands of Negro youth, some of the troops were sent to guard the Capitol and the White House. Backlash against Johnson, 1966 and 1967. In 1966, the press sensed a credibility gap between that what Johnson was saying in press conferences and what he was happening on the ground in Vietnam, which led to much less favorable coverage. By the year's end, the Democratic governor of Missouri, Warren E. Hearns, warned that Johnson would lose the state by 100,000 votes despite winning by a margin of 500,000 in 1964. Frustration over Vietnam, too much federal spending and taxation, no great public support for your great society's programs, and public disenchantment with the civil rights programs had eroded the president's standing. The government reported there were bright spots in, in January 1967. Bon Johnson posted that wages were the highest in history, unemployment was at a 13-year low, and Corporate profits and farm incomes were greater than ever, a 4.5% jump in consumer prices than ever. A 4.5% jump in consumer prices was worrisome, and as was the rise in interest rates, Johnson asked for a temporary 6% surcharge in income taxes to cover the mounting deficit caused by increased spending. Johnson's approval ratings had plunged to 16% from 25% four months before he ran about even with Republican George Romney in trial matchups at spring, asked to explain why he was unpopular. Johnson responded, I am I am a dominating personality, and when I get things done, I don't always please all the people. Johnson also blamed the press, saying they showed complete irresponsibility and lie and misstate misfacts and have no one to be answerable to. He also blamed the preachers, liberals, and professors who had returned, who had turned against him in the congressional elections of 1966. The Republicans gained three seats in the Senate and 47 in the House, reinvigorating the conservative coalition and making it more difficult for Johnson to pass any additional Great Society legislation. However, in the end, Congress passed almost 96% of the administration's Great Society programs, which Johnson then signed into law. Vietnam War. 
At Kennedy's death, there were 60,000 American military personnel stationed in Vietnam supporting South Vietnam in the war against Viet- North Vietnam. Vietnam had been partitioned into, at the 1950 Geneva Conference into two countries, with North Vietnam led by a communist government. Johnson described the domino theory in Vietnam and to a containment policy that required America to make a serious effort to stop all communist expansion on taking office. Johnson immediately reserves Kennedy's order to withdraw 1,000 military personnel by the end of 1963. In late summer 1964, Johnson seriously questioned the value of staying in Vietnam, but after meeting with Secretary of State Dean Rusk and Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff Maxwell D. Taylor, declared his readiness to do more when we had a base or when Saigon was politically more stable. He expanded the numbers and roles of the American military following the Gulf of Tonkin incident. 1964 and August 1964, allegations arose from the military that two U.S. destroyers had been attacked by some North Vietnamese torpedo boats in international waters 40 miles, 64 kilometers from the Vietnam coast in the Gulf of Tonkin. Naval communications and reports of the attack were contradictory, although Johnson very much wanted to keep discussions about Vietnam out of the 1964 election campaign. He felt forced to respond to their supposed aggression by the Vietnamese, so he sought and obtained from the Congress the Gulf of Tonkin resolution on August 7th. On August 7th. Johnson was determined to embold, embolden his image on foreign policy and also wanted to prevent criticism such as Truman had received in Korea by proceeding without congressional endorsement of a military action. Responding to the purported attack would also blunt presidential campaign criticism of weakness from the hawkish Goldwater camp. Their resolution gave congressional approval for use of military force by the commander-in-chief to repel future attacks and also to assist members of CETO. Requesting assistance, Johnson later in the campaign expressed assurance that the primary U.S. goal remained the preservation of South Vietnamese independence through material and advice, as opposed to any U.S. offensive posture. The public's reaction to the resolution at the time was positive. 48% favored stronger measures in Vietnam, (coughs) and only 40% wanted to, to negotiate a settlement and leave. In the 1964 presidential campaign, Johnson restated his determination to provide measure support for Vietnam while avoiding other another while avoiding another Korea. But privately, he had sent off off or boating about Vietnam, a feeling that no matter what he did. Things would end badly. Indeed, his heart was on his great society agenda, and he even felt that his political opponents favored greater intervention in Vietnam in order to divert attention and resources away from his war and poverty. The situation on the ground was abrogated in the fall by additional Viet Minh attacks on U.S. ships in the Tonkin Gulf, as well as an attack on Viet Ho Air base in South Vietnam. Johnson decided against retaliatory action at the time after cons- consultation with the Joint Chiefs and also as a public pollster, Lou Harris confirmed that the decision would not detrimentally affect him at the polls. By the end of 1964, they were approximately 23,000 military personnel in South Vietnam. U.S. casualties for two- 1964 totaled 1,278. In the winter of 1964-1965, Johnson was pressured by the military to begin a 
bombing campaign to forcibly resist a communist takeover in South Vietnam. Morally, moreover, a plurality in the polls at the time were in favor of military action against the communists, with only 26 to 30 percent opposed. Johnson refined his priorities, and a new conference for stronger action came at the end of January with yet another exchange of government in Saigon. He then agreed with Mac Bundy and McNamara that the continued passive role would only lead to defeat and withdrawal and humiliation. Johnson said, stable government or no stable government in Saigon, we will do what we ought to do. I'm prepared to do that. We will move strongly. General Nagayan Khan, head of the new government, is our boy. 1965. Johnson decided on a systematic bombing campaign in February after a ground report from Bundy recommending immediate U.S. action to avoid defeat. Also, the defeat Kong had just killed eight U.S. advisors and wounded dozens of others in, a, in an attack at Pleiku Airbase. The eight-week bombing campaign became known as Operation Rolling Thunder. Johnson's instructions for public consumption were clear. There was to be no comment that the war effort had been expanded. Long-term estimates of the bombing campaign ranged from an expectation that Hanoi would reign in, reign in the Viet Cong to one of provoking Hanoi and the Viet Cong into an, an intensification of the war. But the short-term expectations were consistent that the morale and stability of the South Vietnamese Government would be bolstered by limiting the foreign get the information given out to the public and even to Congress. Johnson maximized his flexibility to change course. In March, Bundy began to urge the use of ground forces, air operations alone. He counseled would not stop Hanoi's aggression against the South. Johnson approved an increase in logistical troops of 18,000 to 20,000 and the deployment of two additional Marine battalions and a Marine air squadron in addition to planning for the deployment of two more divisions. More seriously, he also authorized a change in mission from defenses to offensive operations. He nevertheless continued to insist that his that this was not to publicly represent to be publicly represented as a change in existing policy. By the middle of June, the total of US ground forces in Vietnam were increased to eighty two thousand or by hundred and fifty percent. That same month Ambassador Taylor reported that the bombings bombing offensive against North Vietnam had been ineffective and that the South Vietnamese Army was outclassed and in danger of collapse. General Westmore Len shortly thereafter recommended the President further increase ground troops from 82,000 to 175,000. After consulting with his principals, Johnson desires of a low profile, chose to announce at a press conference an increase of 125,000 troops with additional forces to be sent later upon request. Johnson described himself at the time as boxed in by unpalatable choices set between sending Americans to die in Vietnam and giving in to the communists. <coughs> if he sent additional troops, he would be attacked as an interventionist, and if he did not, he thought he risked being impeached. He continues to insist that his decision did not imply any change in policy whatsoever. Of his desire, to veil the decision, Johnson suggested privately, if you have a mother-in-law with only one eye and she has it in the center of her forehead, you don't keep her in the living room. By October 1965, there were 200,000 troops deployed in Vietnam. Johnson underwent surgery on November 8, 1965 at the Bethesda Naval Hospital to remove his gallbladder and a kidney stone. Afterward, his doctor reported that the president had come through the surgery beautifully as expected. He was able to resume his duties the next day. He met with reports. He met with reporters a couple days later and reassured the nation that he was recovering well. 
Although Johnson was incapacitated during his surgery, there is no transfer of presidential power to Vice President Humphrey, as no constitutional provision to do so existed at the time. The 25th Amendment, which Congress had sent to the states for ratification, ratification four months earlier, included procedures for the order transfer of power in the case of presidential incapacity, but was not ratified until 1967. 1966. Public and political impatience with the war began to emerge in the spring of 1966, and Johnson's approval rates reached a new low of 41%. Senator Richard Russell, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, reflected the national mood in June 1966 when he declared it was time to get it out or get o- get it over or get out. Johnson responded by saying to the press, we are trying to provide a maximum deterrence that we can to communist aggression with a minimum of cost. In response to the intensive criticism of the war effort, Johnson raised suspicions of communist subversion in the country and press relations became strained. Johnson's primary war policy opponent in Congress was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, James William Fulbright, who convened a, a series of public hearings in February to question a range of experts on the progressive war, the persistent Johnson began to seriously consider a more focused bombing campaign against petroleum, oil, and lubrication facilities of North Vietnam in hopes of accelerating victory. Humphrey, Rusk, and McNamara all agreed in the bombing banning at the end of June. In July, polling results indicated that Americans favored the bombing campaign by a 5-1 to one margin. However, in August, a defense department study indicated that the bombing campaign had little impact on North Vietnam. In the fall of 1966, multiple sources began to report that progress was being made against the North Vietnamese logistics and infrastructure. Johnson was urged from every corner to begin peace discussions. There was no shortage of peace initiatives, nevertheless, among protesters. English philosopher Bertrand Russell attacked Johnson's policy as a barbaric aggressive war of conquest, and in June he initiated the International War Crimes Tribunal as a means to condemn the American effort. The gap with Hanoi was and an unabridgable demand on both sides for a unilateral end to bombing with and withdrawal of forces. In, jo- in August, Johnson appointed Avril Harriman, ambassador for peace, to promote negotiations. Westmoreland and McNamara then recommended a concerted program to promote pacification. Johnson formally placed this effort under military control in October, October also in October 1966, to reassure and promote his war effort. Johnson initiated a meeting with allies in Manila, the South Vietnamese, the Thai, South Koreans, Filipinos, Australians, and New Zealanders. The conference ended with pronouncements to stand fast against communist aggression and to promote ideals of democracy and development in Vietnam and across Asia. For Johnson, it was a fleeting public relations success confirmed by a 63% Vietnam approval rating in November. Nevertheless, in December, Johnson's Vietnam approval rating was again back down in the 40s. LBJ had become anxious to justify the war casualties and talk to the, of the need for decisive victory despite the unpopularity of the cause. In a discussion about the war with former President Dwight Eisenhower on October 3, 1966, Johnson said he was trying to win it just as fast as I can in every way that I know how and later that he needed all the help I can get. By year's end, it was clear that current pacification efforts were ineffectual as had been the 
air campaign, Johnson then agreed to McNamara's new recommendation to add 7,000 troops in 1967 to the 400,000 previously committed. While McNamara recommended no increase in the level of bombing, Johnson agreed with CIA recommendations to increase them. The increased bombing began despite initial secret talk being held in Saigon, Hanoi, and Warsaw. While the bombing ended, the talks nor the intentions were not considered genuine. Stay tuned for part 5 of U.S. President number 36, Lyndon B. Johnson.